0: Well good morning everybody and welcome to this seminar which is on the title of Science versus God. And uh, just to introduce myself, my name is Adrian Holloway. I'm based at Everyday Church in London. I'm married to Juliet. We've got four daughters and I'm delighted to say something on this subject. I'm going to speak for 35 minutes and then we'll have 25 minutes where you can ask any questions that you may have and then at 12.30 we will definitely finish bang on 12.30 And uh, that's when we'll uh, head off and I'll stay behind and answer any questions that you may have. So 25 minutes of questions through the microphones and then I'll stay for however long chatting to people one-on-one at the end. Okay, here we go, folks. Science versus God. I think that there is no need to see science and God as enemies. And I could illustrate that by introducing you to hundreds of brilliant scientists who believe in God. We could demonstrate it beyond reasonable doubt today if we all traveled on a fleet of coaches now to Cambridge where I could introduce you to scores of top scientists who are also Bible believing Christians and members of excellent churches in Cambridge. For example, Professor Russell Coburn, who is today, perhaps, the leading physicist at Cambridge University, he is a Bible believing Christian in a church which is just a few miles from where we are now. And Professor Russell Coburn says that studying science has strengthened his faith in God. There are lots of reasons why I think that God exists. Here are my top four reasons why I think God exists. Now, if you look at my list, the top two are related to the subject we're talking about today, related to science. Let's imagine that you have a friend from school or college or a neighbor, and this friend of yours is totally convinced that science has buried God. Therefore, they don't listen to my point one or my point two, which is science-related. Let's just have a look at my number three and my number four. Let's just have a look at these two points. Now, obviously, this seminar is going to be all about science, yes? But just for a minute, let's just take a look and see, are there any other good reasons to think that God exists? My third reason is evidence from the existence of what I would call objective moral values and duties. And the good news is that this is much simpler to understand than it might first appear. So have a look at this moral argument for the existence of God. Have a look at this first premise. Now, let me see if I can explain what's meant by premise one. In the 1950s, here in Britain, there were absolutely loads of people, probably the majority of people living in Britain in the 1950s, who went along with Christian morality. They thought behaving in a Christian way was the right thing to do. They didn't necessarily believe that the Bible was the word of God, but they definitely joined in with what everybody else was doing, living in a Christian way, in the most part. But by the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, increasingly, people have taken the view, you know what? If God does not exist, then there's no reason why I should behave in a way that fits in with Christian morality. And so today, it would be completely normal for somebody to say today, you wouldn't be shocked to hear somebody say, well, look, I don't think that God exists, so therefore I can do whatever I want. That would be a completely normal, possibly logical thing for you and I to hear. Your grandparents, if your grandparents had met someone who said, yeah, well, look, you know, If God doesn't exist, there's no reason why I should behave in a moral way. They might have been a little bit alarmed. All I'm saying is that this premise has become increasingly popular in Europe. More and more people in Western Europe would go along with premise one. Now let's have a look at premise two, which says that objective moral values and duties do exist. What does that mean? What that means is that more and more people these days living in our part of the world say things like this, rape is wrong. And it's not just that I think that rape is wrong, and I think that genocide is wrong, and also I think that adult men interfering with underage boys, I think that's wrong. Not only do I think these things are wrong, but these things have always been wrong. If they happened in a different society with different values, they'd still be wrong there. If they happened 2,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, if they happened 20,000 years ago in some other society that's completely unlike my society, it would still have been wrong. Rape, genocide, interfering with small children would still have been wrong back then. What they are saying is something that's commonplace today, that some things really are wrong, that objective moral values and duties do exist, and it doesn't depend upon what society you're living in. Now, if you put premise one and premise two together... That's actually quite a good argument for the existence of God. Anyway, that's a third of my four reasons to think that God exists. I'll just mention briefly the fourth of the four as well. It's all to do with the evidence for the historic resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, why would I mention this as one of my four reasons to think that God exists? fairly simple reason. There are lots of academics who write books and articles about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Some of them are atheists and write their books to disprove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Some are agnostics, they don't really care, they don't really know. Some are Bible-believing Christians. There's a whole range of people. But all of these people are professional historians. And so what some historians do is that they survey the academic output of all the scholars that scrutinise the resurrection, and then they look at the various events in the resurrection story and they score them. Which of the various events concerning Jesus' resurrection do most academics, including skeptics, including non-Christian historians, do most sign up for? Here are the top four facts. Number one, that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Almost impossible to find, you know, professional historians who are claiming that Jesus didn't exist. And this is one of the most well-established facts about the historic Jesus, that he was crucified and died as a result. Secondly, that Jesus' tomb was empty. Again, very high scores. The vast majority of even skeptical scholars would agree with that. Thirdly, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. And then fourthly, the conversion of the anti-Christian persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. So, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, why I am a Christian is because... The resurrection explanation of those four facts outdistances all the competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection theory is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all four of those facts. So that's another reason why I think that God exists. Why am I bothering to talk about this in a science seminar? Simply to say this even if we were to take the view that actually there is no scientific evidence that supports the existence of God. Let's take a fairly gloomy prediction. There is no scientific evidence that supports the existence of God. That would not mean that God doesn't exist, because there are still other reasons to think that God exists. For example, the moral argument for the existence of God. For example, a historical argument for the existence of God from the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus claimed to be God and he said, I will demonstrate and show that I am God by rising from the dead. When they kill me three days later, I'll come back. If we have good reasons to think that God exists from historical observations, from the moral argument, it could well be that God does exist even if there is actually no scientific evidence to think that God exists. So that gives some context that this question, while a big question, doesn't actually have the potential to rule out the existence of God. But let's have a look and see, is there any evidence for God's existence from scientific research? What about science? Let's imagine that there's someone in the tent right now, and perhaps you've never been to New Day before. Maybe you've been invited along by a friend from school or college or a mate from somewhere, let's say that you don't believe in God. Let's say, for example, that your parents don't believe in God. Let's imagine that you think that science has buried God, and in fact, that perhaps might be something that you've been brought up to believe, or maybe you've changed your views and now you think that science has buried God. What could I say in the next few minutes that might make some kind of sense to you? Well, first let me say that I myself, I I used to be a skeptic as far as Christianity is concerned. I didn't go to church. Uh, I didn't actually know anyone my age who went to church. So I could never have imagined how I would end up doing this. So if you're here and you think that science has buried God, actually I do know where you're coming from. And I do have real sympathy with that view and with those of you who take it. But as you can probably tell from the fact that I'm standing here, I do now think that God exists. I personally am not aware of any scientific discovery that has buried God. Because it seems to me anyway that science and God are answering different questions. I think that those people who see science and God as enemies are comparing apples with oranges. The existence of apples doesn't rule out the existence of oranges, and vice versa. Science provides superb explanations for how things happen. And the advance of science should be cheered and applauded by all of us here. But if we ask the question, why, why did something happen, for example, Why is there something rather than nothing? Why did the universe begin to exist? I want to to suggest to you that God may turn out to be a perfectly reasonable and viable answer to that why question. I'm holding in my hand a book by Francis Collins. It's called The Language of God. And it's his personal story of how he converted from atheism to Christianity. It's the story of how halfway through his academic career as a scientist, Francis Collins became a follower of Jesus. After becoming a Christian, Collins was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And in April 2003, he announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the entire human genome. This is one of the most astounding scientific advances of all time. Has science buried God? Well, clearly not in the opinion of the many leading scientists like Francis Collins who believe in God. They see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. He is just one of a long list of Christians who are also outstanding scientists they would say that juxtaposing science and God as opposites, they would say that is a category mistake. Now, what do they mean when they say it's a category mistake? Well, let's imagine that I decide to make a cup of tea. Let's imagine that at some point, while the kettle is boiling, scientists Kelvin and Joule discover the precise mechanism whereby heat is turned into boiling water. So we've discovered the mechanism. We now know how the water boiled. But it would be a mistake to say because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist, that would be a mistake because it would still be quite accurate to say the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore Adrian Holloway doesn't exist, that would be a category mistake. So we don't need an either or explanation, and it seems that actually most people in Britain agree. A European Commission poll found that 78 percent of people in Britain believe in God and or the supernatural. But these are the very same British adults have more scientific education than any preceding generation. So it seems that even in our modern technological age, actually most British people don't see science and God as enemies. They don't see it as an either or. Most people see science and God as a both and. And so having heard that kind of reply, I then said, okay, maybe you're right Science hasn't buried God. But hey, as we discover more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does look increasingly unlikely. Yes? Well, that is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Firstly then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe was eternal. It had always been there. There was never a time where it wasn't there. They used to argue in that way at that time because at that time, the universe was thought to be locked in a so-called static or steady state. Then an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is actually not locked in a static steady state. Hubble saw that the other galaxies are moving away from us and from each other. The easiest way for us to visualize what Hubble saw is to use a balloon. So just imagine with me for a moment that... (sighs) These stars on my daughter's balloon are actually galaxies. What Hubble saw is that the other galaxies are all moving away from us and they're moving away from each other. And wherever we look in the universe, this is what's happening. So cosmologists concluded the universe is expanding. And they concluded that seeing as the universe definitely is expanding, in the past, the universe must have been much smaller than it is today. In fact, they concluded that at one time, even before this size, the universe did have a beginning. And then in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that was left behind by this beginning moment. The radiation is like a signature left behind by the beginning moment. So today, there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time the universe did have a beginning. Let me put the same thing to you a different way. Imagine if I said to you that 13.7 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. But then, a fraction of a second later, there was a huge purple carrot the size of Norwich. Now, I put it to you that the sudden appearance of the huge carrot would demand some sort of explanation. You see, it's not that matter and energy exploded out into an already existing space-time universe. No. Space and time themselves began to exist at the beginning moment. Space, time, matter, and energy all began to exist at this beginning moment. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly out of nothing. And this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Now, let me just mention step one, which says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, this sounds reasonable, At least, we don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist, and as we have just seen, this is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. This is the standard model. So the conclusion necessarily follows, the universe has a cause. Something or someone that exists outside of time and space cause the space-time universe to come into existence. Now, you and I, we do base our lives on the law of cause and effect. So to get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. A cause that is capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence out of nothing? Well, you could call that first cause God. God. So I looked at, firstly, the origin of the universe. Secondly, then, folks, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, we know that if we were 5% closer to the sun, we'd fry. We know that if we were 5% further away, we'd freeze. There wouldn't be any life on Earth. We know that our solar system just happens to be in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone of our Milky Way, in between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms. Maybe you can see the tiny yellow letters there, which shows where our sun is, and that is actually a rare safe place in the Milky Way. Also, of course, where you are. But the degree of fine-tuning that we are talking about, when we are talking about the origin or the fine-tuning of the universe, it's far more impressive than any of that No, way back at the beginning of the universe, there's an explosion which causes matter to fly outwards, but it flies outwards, folks, at a perfectly controlled speed. Too fast an expansion, and nothing would ever settle down, there wouldn't ever be a universe. Alternatively, too slow an expansion, and the universe never gets going in the first place. So, the universe expands, but the speed of the expansion turns out to be critical. If slowed down too much, the universe just collapses back on itself. If the rate of expansion one second after the beginning moment had been smaller by even one part in a hundred million billion, billion 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 billion, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And the speed of the expansion of the universe is controlled by something called the cosmological constant, which is the energy density of empty space. Therefore, the cosmological constant cannot be just any old number. No, in order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant, which is four up from the bottom of this table, it has to be a very precise number. If it wasn't the number that it is, We wouldn't be here. But it is not just the cosmological constant. It turns out there are 20 of these forces, 20 numbers, 20 values which have to be just so, otherwise no humans, no people could ever have existed. Roger Penrose, who developed our current understanding of black holes, he works out the odds of entropy. Entropy is the speed at which things break down and decay in the universe. He worked out the chances of entropy having the value that it does have in our universe as one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Folks, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe universe. But that is just entropy, one of the many factors. All 20 have to be just so in order for us to be here. So why is our universe so unlikely? Because of the large number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of our universe's existence. It turns out that gravity And electromagnetism have to just, bing, exist, but not just exist. They have to be finely tuned to each other. The same is true of neutrons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and the weak nuclear force. The same is true of matter and antimatter. Folks, any messing with any of the numbers in that column which said value in our universe, if you touch any of the dials, There's no universe, and there's no life. Let's use gravity as an example. Imagine with me for a second that this tape measure was enormously long. Imagine that it stretched from right over here, one side of the observable universe, right over to the other side of the observable universe. In fact, it's the longest tape measure that could be imagined. Now let's imagine that. This taint measure represents the entire range of possible force strengths for gravity. So at one end of the universe, we have the weakest possible gravitational force, and over here, um, we have the strongest possible gravitational force. And in fact, that range is represented by the distance from one side of the universe to the other. Now, let's imagine that the strength of gravity on Earth is currently set here. Let's imagine that I want to increase the strength of gravity on Earth by just two and a half centimeters from here to here. Folks, scientists have found out that this tiny increase from here to here on this vast scale, that this increase from here to here would actually increase the strength of gravity on Earth a billion fold. It would mean that there would never have been any life on Earth. This tiny increase from here to here, scientists have established would mean that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. In other words, planet Earth would never have been any bigger than this stage. But that's just gravity. In order for us to be here, we have to have all these other factors finely tuned to each other. There are two of the 20 on our list, and scientists have discovered that they're fine-tuned to each other to precision, of one part in 10 to the power 40. Now, it just so happens that Canadian astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross from Toronto University has a famous illustration of what a one in 10 to the power 40 chance would actually look like in real life. He says take a continent the size of North America and cover it with small coins. And then pile your coins up so high that your coins reach 236,000 miles up to the moon. He says, then take an additional 1 billion other continents, also the size of North America, and pile your coins up again, 236,000 miles up to the moon. He says, once you've got 1 billion continents, all the size of North America, all of which reach the moon, he says, at that point, take one additional coin. But this time, paint this one coin red and then hide your red coin in one of your one billion piles. Then, he says, find a member of the public and ask them if they would like to participate in a scientific experiment. If they say yes, you blindfold the member of the public and then you say, okay, pick a coin, any coin. From any one of the 1 billion piles the size of North America that reached to the moon, the chance that your member of the public, this stranger, will pick out that one red coin first time is a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. That's what we need for just two of our list of 20 values to be fine-tuned to each other. But in order for you to be here, for you to exist. Not just those two, but all 20 have to be just as they are, fine-tuned to each other. Folks, I personally reached a point where I realized that in any other area of my life, I would never accept chance or sheer luck as the best explanation for the facts that are in front of us. Next, the origin of organic life. And here we're going to watch a video which I shall talk over. Okay, if you'd like to press go, we're going to look inside a cell. And uh, with the benefit of computer animation, we can enter the heart of a cell and we can view this remarkable system at work. This is something that's happening inside of you even as I'm speaking. After entering the heart of a cell, we can see the tightly wound strands of DNA. And these are storehouses which contain the instructions that are needed in order to build every protein in an organism. Then in a process known as transcription, this molecular machine first unwinds the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions that are needed in order to assemble a specific protein molecule. Then, another molecular machine copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. Then, when transcription is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. Look, it knocks on the door. It's very British and civilized. Let me out. Certainly, sir. This is the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is then directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. There, after attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids, as you can see, are being transported from other parts of the cell, and then they're linked into chains that are often hundreds of units long. And it is their sequential arrangement that determines the type of protein that is being manufactured. And all of this, of course, folks, is determined by your unique genetic code. That DNA code that we saw on the screen right back at the very beginning of our video. When this chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to this barrel-shaped machine where it's going to be folded into the precise chain shape that is critical to its function. And it is awe-inspiring to consider that exactly what's happening on the screen is happening in your body right now as you're watching it animated on the screen. So these three-dimensional peptide bonds roll it on. If you could just bring the video back for the last bit. After the chain is folded into a protein, you can see here that it's released and shepherded by another molecular machine. How cool is that? No way. And it's taken to the exact location where it's needed. So the origin of DNA is a problem for any chance theory. The DNA code tells the amino acids to arrange themselves in a special sequence. And as you know, a longer stretch of code is called a gene. The point is that information-rich messages that can reproduce life don't just happen. But when DNA arrives on the scene, it's an instruction book. This looks suspiciously like forward planning. So where did the first DNA code come from in the first ever living cell? Let's just recap. DNA is an information code. It can be written down in letters. It is an intelligent message. It exists inside the cell. It has to exist in order for the cell to work and to reproduce itself, which begs the question, where did the information come from in the first ever cell? The information is written in a code, so the code and the means of translating the code have to both come online at the same moment. One of those two things is useless without the other. This is a massive problem for any chance theory. The man who discovered the structure of DNA Sir Francis Crick, he said that seeing as life could never have come into existence by chance on planet Earth, it must have been transported here by aliens from elsewhere in the galaxy by prehistoric spaceship. This is the man who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. He says in his book, life itself, quote, Microorganisms traveled in the head of an unmanned spaceship sent to Earth by a higher civilization which developed elsewhere billions of years ago. Now, it seems to me that he hasn't solved the problem. It seems to me that he simply moved the problem. There are other huge problems here on the screen that we don't have time to go into now. But let's just pause and try and draw some of the threads together as we close. Folks, nothing that I've said this morning proves that God exists. I'll just repeat that so that all of us are clear. Nothing that I have said this morning proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation then when you look at the origin of the universe and when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe and when we look at the origin of biological information, in all three cases, what seems to be needed is a transcendent, intelligent first cause. And you could call a transcendent, intelligent first cause God. It seems that science hasn't buried God. God's existence is a viable, reasonable explanation for the existence of the universe, for the fine-tuning of the universe, and for the existence of life. Thank you very much for listening to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I said I'd be 35 minutes. I was exactly 35 minutes. Now, if you would like to ask a question, perhaps, thank you. <laughs> we have. I'm pointing now to two microphones. I would love you to queue up in that wonderful British way that we all know how to do. And uh, if you would like to ask a question, I'm going to take 25 minutes of questions. I'm going to finish bang on 12.30. So if you'd like to come up and ask a question, what I'll do is I will take quite a few questions and then I'll stop and answer them I won't necessarily answer all of them all together. Okay, do you, wanna, do you have a question? Do you want to go ahead? Just start speaking for the microphone. If everybody else could quieten down just to help the guys who aren't used to speaking to 1,500 people. Go ahead. You might need to pick it up as, as loud as you can. Let's all hush for this, guys. If you could stay with us till 12.30, that would really be appreciated. Go ahead. What do you think about evolution? What do I think about evolution? Okay. um, Let's do that. Hang on a minute. Let's just take a couple more uh, because I have got some slides prepared. What what did you want to ask over here? What would you say about the comparison and difference of the creationist argument and the Big Bang Theory regarding timings and order of creation? Okay. So this is a question about evolution. This is a question about the timings and the order of creation, um, particularly from a young Earth point of view. So I can talk to both of those. Would you like to ask your question in the white T-shirt? Um, I have a two-part question. Go ahead, um, yeah. it's Well, what, why would God give us carbon dating and the fossil record and stuff like that? And my first part to that question was, how old do you think the universe is? Because if a uh, Christian says then it's 6,000 years old, then why does God give us what looks like evidence to point towards a much older universe. Yeah, okay, so that's another great question. It's also about the age of the universe, and I think you probably noticed in the talk that I said that I thought that the universe was 13.7 billion years old, um, so that in itself requires a little bit of explanation. Great question. What did you want to ask, sir? you there in the white T-shirt? Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's actually something my science teacher asked me. Yeah, go ahead. Um, if god made everything who made god okay who made god is the central objection of richard dawkins book the god delusion he says that's the main argument we need to come back to that one yes you in the green t-shirt what did you want to ask i'm planning on being a biologist and i'm wondering how to deal with the fact that all the science lessons teach from a point of view that god doesn't exist oh okay that's very interesting Every, science lesson, every biology lesson comes from the point of view that God doesn't exist. Well, my wife is a biologist, and she'd probably be able to give some quite good advice. So um, we can come back to that one as well. Let's take a couple more, and then I'm going to answer one of these questions. In the blue T-shirt, do you want to ask a question? Um, in 1950, an experiment happened at the University of Chicago where a scientist and his assistant put together um, the chemicals that are believed to be on planet Earth when it was formed and they found a bacteria being formed inside it. Do you know how that might have happened? Yes, okay, I'm gonna answer that question and then we'll go to, if you guys would mind just hanging on. Okay, so this young man here is referring to a a scientific experiment called the Miller-Urey experiment, which you will find in most biology textbooks. But if you actually look carefully at what it says, it will also say that since the 1950s, scientists have discovered that the conditions on the early Earth were the exact opposite of the conditions that were assumed by Miller-Urey. So, at that time, in fact, probably even when I was at school, it was thought that on the early Earth, there was a a sort of a a, a soup of a primordial soup of chemicals. In the 1990s, scientists discovered that that prebiotic soup never existed on the early Earth. So the Miller-Urey experiment was interesting at the time, it was fascinating what those guys managed to conjure up in the test tube, but the conditions that they anticipated when they were doing the experiment, we now know, are not the conditions that existed on the early Earth. Okay, let me take a couple more. Would you want to ask your question? Um, you said earlier that um, you, you happily you know, accepted scientific advances, um, but what about those to do with genetic modifications? So changing you know, your appearance due to changing genes, as well as, like, as a fetus, changing those genes. Some people may consider that playing God. Okay, I mean, I think that's a great question. It's a question about ethics, and it presumes that God does exist. Um, so let me, let me come back to that one. Let me just have a couple more. Do you want to ask a question? The idea of this is that I've done a lot of talking. I want to give you guys a chance to talk. Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to know... Why God would make the universe and work so hard and do such complicated things to make the universe and us? (laughs) Well, as a Christian, I think God went to a lot of trouble to make the universe because he had a plan, which was he wanted to create people like him. He wanted to create free moral agents with the ability to make choices who could choose to love him. So similar to the reason why, if you were to say to me and my wife, why did you decide to try and have children? we anticipated that if we created free moral agents who could choose to love us, that they, if we loved that child, that that free moral agent might love us back. And we thought that would be fantastic fun to have a relationship with a child. And so God has gone to all this trouble to create an environment whereby you can have advanced organic life on the surface of our planet with creatures that can make choices. And God thought that for his own reasons that would be a pleasurable thing. That's the biblical answer. Okay, one more, and then I'm gonna come back on something. So, yeah, go for it. Hello, um, I'm a religious studies teacher. Um, and okay. What my students are happy to accept is that um, the universe did need a cause. They're happy to accept um, Aristotle's prime mover. What they can't be happy to accept is the jump that Aquinas makes to the loving God of the Bible. Okay. Um, and I guess what I guess your answer question for me is. Um, how, did, how can we explain that jump? How can we say, yes, intelligent cause, um, and then suddenly jump and say, loving God who did all the things in the Old Testament, who sent Jesus, but who is also transcendent and perfect and outside of time and space? Okay, this is a great question. Thank <laughs> you very much for answering your question. asking your question. Okay, here's how I would seek to make that connection. I would say that we have established that the situation we have at the beginning of the universe involves a, a cause for our universe that created matter, time, space and energy. Therefore, if that creator, whoever he, she or it is, is the origin of time, the cause must be timeless. If this creator is the creator of space, the cause must be spaceless. If the creator created all matter, the cause must be immaterial. And if the creator created all the energy that exists in the entire universe, then that cause must be immeasurably great and enormously powerful. Therefore, the cause of our universe is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and enormously powerful. This looks just like the personal God of the Bible. Also, if you go back to the kettle analogy at the very start, do you remember the kettle analogy with the, with the boiling water and the mechanism? When the universe begins to exist, you haven't got a kettle. You haven't got any materials. You haven't got any, any physical items because nothing's existing yet. Therefore, if you don't have the physical elements, you're looking for a personal cause. Therefore, I think it's easy to show that the cause of the universe is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful, and must be personal because it cannot be material. Again, I think that looks like the God of the Bible. Now, we've had some great questions, and I feel like I should give an answer. There were a number of questions about the subject of evolution and about the age of the Earth. So can we look at some stuff on that? And in fact, I've got a slide with that question, what about evolution? Should we just have a look at that? Folks, evolution begins with the entire universe already in existence. Evolution has nothing to say about how the universe started, nor has evolution got anything to say about how life began. So, let us, first of all, be clear about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory really is. Biological evolution does not even begin until the universe has already been around for 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Why did the universe begin to exist? Biological evolution doesn't even address those questions. Biological evolution begins after you've already got the universe and you've already got planet Earth and you've already got a single-celled organism that is living in the ideal conditions. So I think it's obvious that evolution could be true and God still exists, yes? It would be a mistake to argue that because evolution has happened, God does not exist. That is the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. That is the category mistake that we started with at at the beginning of our seminar. I want to look now briefly at three different Christian responses to evolution, particularly as some of our questioners have already mentioned the first of them. One response to the question of evolution is what's often called young earth creationism. This is the view that the earth is young it's only twenty to 30,000 years old. This is a view that says that the, our planet was created in six 24-hour days. It says that common descent or evolution between species has not happened. If you wanted to find out more about this view, you could go to answers in Genesis. And let me just say on this view, we had a questioner which was, who was asking about carbon dating and about fossils. Just to explain where that question is coming from, These guys, the answers in Genesis guys, the young earth creationists, they think that all the fossils that exist are not millions of years old, as most people today would think, but they think that they were fossilized by a catastrophic flood, which is the global flood talked about in the book of Genesis, Noah's Flood. So they don't think that... Dinosaurs are 250 million years old. Um, Most people today think that dinosaurs lived between 250 million years ago and 65 million years ago. These guys don't think that. They think that all of the fossil remains were all laid down by this catastrophic flood event. This is one view. Let's look at a second view. Old Earth creationism. This view accepts the scientific consensus today that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, and that the Earth is 4.5 billion years ago. These guys, at Reasons to Believe, they also think, like the young Earth guys, that common descent or evolution between species has not taken place. But you may be intrigued to notice that they do think that hominids, such as, for example, Homo agaster, lived between 1.8 million years ago and half a million years ago, They think that Neanderthals lived between 300, no, that's wrong, between 150,000 years ago and 30,000 years ago. But they say that these hominids were spiritually animals, creatures who God created, who subsequently have gone extinct, like so many other animals that God created that have gone extinct. So they don't think that any of these hominids are related to us. That's a second view. A third view, which sometimes is called theistic evolution, differs from both of the first two views we've seen, saying that common descent and evolution between species has taken place. They would argue that God has supervised or guided the process, either to a greater or a lesser extent, and if you were interested to find out more about this view, you could go to BioLogos. Now, All three of those views are taken by sincere Christians who want to treat the Bible seriously. As I'm sure you've already noticed, they do interpret the early chapters of the book of Genesis differently from each other. In our church, you will find people who take all three of those views and, in fact, a number of other views as well. I would imagine on this campsite you'll find people who will take all three of those views and also some other views that I haven't had time to mention. But if the bottom line question is, hey, I was brought up to believe in evolution, which I was. My parents believe in evolution, which they do. And incidentally, can I just say, everybody on the planet believes in microevolution, evolution on a small scale, adaptions, variations, natural selection, the survival of the fittest. Everybody thinks that you get different types of finches, you can breed different types of horses, you get different varieties of dogs. Everybody believes in evolution on a small scale. Most people in Britain would be happy to go along with evolution on a large scale, and that's what I was brought up to believe. But the bottom line is this. If you're asking, do I have to commit intellectual suicide in order to become a Christian? The answer is no, you do not have to commit intellectual suicide. Because you can see there is scope, even within the Christian community, for all three of those very different views. So it doesn't mean we have to stop the conversation immediately. There is scope for people to take different views and even to be part of the same church, which I'm sure you'll find uh, is comforting if you take one of those views. I want to look at one other question that was asked and just cycle back um, to a question about the multiverse. Now, if we just put this slide up uh, for a second, the most common objection to the fine tuning argument, and the reason I want to talk about this is because the most important thing for us about the fine tuning argument is the way that it speaks to the question of evolution. Within the Christian community, there is a debate, there's often quite an interesting debate about the subject of evolution but that is not the debate that's happening in the non-Christian world. They're not wondering whether evolution, macroevolution is correct because everybody has been taught to believe that. The reason why the fine-tuning argument, which we're going to talk about now, is so important is because it does an end, round, an end run around the whole question of evolution. And here's why. Whether or not common dissent has happened effectively becomes a secondary issue. The really big issue is this why would there be a universe which seems to have been set up apparently deliberately because the whole point seems to have been to create the ideal conditions for advanced organic life to happen on one particular planet? Why would there be a planet that has a perfect ecosphere with the ideal... um, uh, Earth magnetic crust, the, the core, the, the core at the base of the Earth, why would you have such perfect circumstances which seem to have been set up specifically so that advanced organic life should happen on our planet? That's the really big question. Because if the universe wasn't like this, there wouldn't have been any evolution. Why? There wouldn't have been any life. How come... There is a universe which has a planet like this that's capable of having advanced organic life. To be honest, it's a secondary question about how that life got there. Did God make it just like that? Did it evolve over time? Well, that's a secondary issue. The main objection to the fine-tuning argument is this. What if there was a vast an infinite number, every single possible conceivable universe that might have existed, And the only reason why you and I are in this tent is because we happen to be living in a universe where our numbers worked. Let's look at three quick responses to the question of the multiverse. First of all, it might be that the multiverse theory is correct. For all I know, the multiverse theory is correct. But by definition, these other parallel universes, they are by definition beyond our ability to detect. Therefore, everyone who believes in the multiverse does so by faith. By very definition, we will never be able to detect the existence of a parallel universe. So, maybe the multiverse theory is correct, but it's really just a faith statement that some people believe. Secondly, why would there be a multiverse where you have an ensemble of the greatest possible number of universes? Why... Why wouldn't there just be three other universes? Or why not 13? Why wouldn't there be 30,000? Why wouldn't there be 366 million? Why wouldn't there be three? Why would there be an infinite number of every single possible conceivable universe? Why would that be? That also is believed by faith. And only the infinite number of every single possible... That's the only version of the multiverse theory that even speaks to the fine-tuning or seeks to explain away the fine-tuning. The fine-tuning evidence is overwhelming. The most important response to the multiverse is the third. And that the multiverse still needs a beginning. It doesn't succeed in getting rid of God. Because even if the multiverse theory is correct, you still have to have a mind or a force or a power that is intelligent enough and capable enough to generate from nothing an ensemble of an infinite number of universes. And I say from nothing because in 2003, scientists Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe that has, over its past history, been in a state of cosmic expansion, that universe cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a space-time boundary. And crucially, Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin were able to prove that their theorem holds not just for our universe, but that it applies to the multiverse as well. Alexander Vilenkin writes these words. It is said that an argument is what it takes to convince reasonable men and a proof is what's required to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place cosmologists can no longer hide between the possibility of a past eternal universe there is no escape they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning so the multiverse objection does not succeed in getting rid of God Okay, we have a few, oh no we've got three minutes left let's have one last question, the first person to run to the microphone gets to ask their question in the last three minutes Hold on to your seats. We'll do one more. Okay, go for it, my friend. Oh, on my left, go for it. Uh, as a Christian, how yes. could you like, choose to believe in evolution when God never intended for death to be inside creation? Okay, the question is concerning the issue of death. How could a Christian choose to believe in evolution? So first of all, let me just say my own personal view. My own personal view is that I don't take the view that macroevolution has taken place. I've yet to be persuaded by the scientific evidence that macroevolution has taken place. I might be persuaded by it, possibly. I don't know, in the future. But so far, I haven't yet heard scientific evidence that I've found persuasive. However, I have heard scientific evidence that I've found persuasive to think that the universe is 13.7 billion years old and that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. So I personally don't have that problem that you're talking about. However, if you were a young earth creationist, you might well be asking that question. And I think the key thing to understand is that there is a Bible passage in the New Testament that talks about death, and this is the controversial passage in the book of Romans. I think that it's talking about human death. I don't think it's talking about animal death. So I realize that there will be people in this tent who disagree with me on this when I say this, but I personally, do, I'm not troubled by the idea that animals died before Adam and Eve came into existence. I don't see a problem with that as far as the Bible is concerned, but I fully understand that young earth creationists would have a problem with that view. Okay. Guys, you've been ever so patient. It's 12, 29. I'm going to pray a 30-second prayer, and then I'm going to stand here in the front of the stage probably for about half an hour taking questions but we can all go our different ways. Just stay with me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for everyone who has come here today and who has a real genuine desire to share the good news about Jesus with friends. But at the moment, their friend tends to dismiss the whole thing with the response, yeah, but hey, I'm a scientist. One day science will explain everything. Lord, we know that through science, we've seen much more about how you began the universe. We know much more, even than 10 years ago, about how you fine-tune the universe and how you set the whole universe up so that advanced organic life could be on the surface of this particular planet. Lord, we pray as we go from this tent that you'd help us to best explain evidence from the origin of the universe, evidence from the fine-tuning of the universe, and to ask really good questions about where life came from, how life ever came from non-life. Help us, Lord, to put these points forward And help us, Lord, ultimately to introduce people to the idea that there is a loving God who went to all the trouble of creating us so that we could have a relationship with him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay behind, ask any questions. God bless you. See you next time.